Good morning, church. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to turn to God's Word this morning. And so I want to invite you, if you have a copy of Scripture with you, to open it up and uh, make your way to the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we have some underneath one of the seats in front of you. You're welcome to use that. If you don't own one, take that home with you. That's our gift uh, to you. And uh, we are excited to uh, continue in our series in Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews uh, is a uh, little different, a little unique of a book because a lot of the other, uh, especially kind of the shorter books in the New Testament, we refer to them as epistles, which is a fancy way of saying letters. Um, but this is uh, not like a typical uh, sort of epistle or letter. It actually has the characteristics, and, and uh, most commentators agree that it was actually like a sermon that was kind of preached. And so whether this was written down and sort of delivered in that way, or maybe it was ever given sort of audibly, but it, it takes about 35, 40 minutes to read through it, and it, it preaches like a sermon. But what we're doing is we're taking the summer, and we're walking our way through the entire book of Hebrews and uh, taking it apart verse by verse, line by line, sentence by sentence, what we like to do around here at City on a Hill. And uh, this morning, we come to Hebrews chapter 9. And if you're just jumping in, um, I want to help kind of set the context here. Um, one of the things that the author is doing this morning in the passage that we're looking at in Hebrews 9 is comparing the old with the new. And he's been doing it for a little bit. And so, again, if you've been here, you kind of are getting this context. But I was thinking even this week about how so many things are better now. Uh, but if we don't think about how maybe they used to be, that we don't uh, often remember or think about just how much things have improved. Let me give you an example. Uh, this week, my wife found online, um, she's been looking for, there's a set of um, Bible DVDs. They're called What's in the Bible. It's a little old school. Some of you are probably familiar with it, but there's like really good content in there. And our youngest, Levi, is like super into them. And so she was like, we got to find more of these things. He is just soaking this up. He's like a sponge. He's memorizing all these things and kind of learning all this stuff. And so we've just been so, um, you know, having so much fun with, we only had one of them, but they don't make them anymore. Um, and so she's been kind of scouring the internet trying to find them. Well, she found some on eBay, and uh, she sent me the link this week, and she said something that kind of blew my mind. She says, hey, can you buy these for me? I've never purchased anything on eBay before. I was like, what? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't know. I think eBay started in like 95. I don't know when. I know it went public in like 98 or something like that. But I have memories in high school of, of buying like rollerblades. My guitar that I, some of you like cheered during the, some of you don't know that I play guitar. I don't play guitar. That's why you've never heard me play guitar. I just pretend to play guitar is what I do. I bought that in high school off eBay. Um, it was actually a guy that lived in my town in, uh, in, in Monroe. And uh, I I was remembering back to what it was like to buy off of eBay in those early days, and it was quite a bit different. If any of you like were original uh, eBayers, um, it was very much different. Like everything was an auction; they didn't really have the "buy it now" feature, and so um, you had to like wait for the time to expire. And again, like some of you are nodding your heads because you know how it went. Because there would be these these people, and I was one of them, that would sit around waiting for the auction to expire, right? And then you'd snipe it at the last minute. You'd come in with that one penny more, or one like. 25 cents more or something like that. Now they have all these features that you can, you can have it auto bid up. And I mean, they know how to make money. They're doing fine. So, but that, that was kind of at the time. I mean, like, so you're like sniping these purchases and getting all these things. But then after you won, that was when things got really interesting because it became this like hostage negotiation. You had to go to the bank, get like a cashier's check, right? Like um, they, it, it was not like PayPal, 
like credit cards, I think they still had to go, you know, to use one of those. So like it, that was like unheard of. And so it was such a hassle because now like I remember being, you know, like I think I don't remember if I was even driving. I think I maybe was. But like I had to like, Dad, can we go get a cashier's check? You know, and so I'm going down to the bank, getting a cashier's check. Then you got to send it. And it was all about your rating because if, if you didn't trust the person, there's a good chance that you just got scammed. You're never seeing that, that item again or any of that. And it was just this whole thing. Well, this week... Very different situation, all right? She sends me the link. I'm like, yeah, I've been on eBay forever. Like, I have a perfect rating. My, my, my rating is perfect, all right? And, um, and, and uh, you know, and so I, I was all ready for the thing, and I was like, oh, you can bid on it. And she's like, can you just, she's like, <laughs> she will bargain at anything. She's like, it's buy it now for 75. She's like, offer 50. And I was like, okay, I'll offer 50. So I, it was a whole stack of these things, all right? So five bucks a piece, really good deal. And so I offer 50 bucks. Um, and, uh, and within like, I don't know, 30 minutes, the offer was accepted. And then like an hour later, I got the transaction had shipped. I just used the credit card that was already saved on my profile. And then three days later, it just showed up. I was like, man, where, all the adventure is gone, you know, in this thing. Like, this is, that was like too easy. But, but it was just so interesting to think about how much things have changed. And uh, yeah, as much as I joke about the adventure, it was very nice. Like, I really enjoyed it. It was like buying anything else. And some of you, many of you remember, I mean, long before we ever purchased things on the internet, like that was unheard of when that was happening. Like, you'd, you'd have a friend and you're like, hey, we got to sit down and talk. Like, I, I just don't think you're, you're kind of... You're doing some risky things right now if you're purchasing something off the internet, right? Like, I mean, that just wasn't a thing. Now it's all changed. Now if you have to, like, not purchase something on the internet, it's like, oh, what a hassle, right? I got to go into a store, talk to a real person, pick something up, carry it to my own car, then into my own house. Like, it's so much, you know, so much harder. Here's the thing. If you don't look back and kind of understand where we came from, you have no perspective on just how good it is now. And I want us to carry that sort of mindset into the passage that we're looking at this morning because the author is continuing this, this sort of theme that he's been developing for, for a few weeks for us now, a few chapters here in the letter, but he's developing this theme and comparing the old with the new. And the point, and if you're like, man, it feels like we're kind of like keep hitting that same nail, like, yes. That is, repetition is the key to learning, right? And so he is like just doubling down, making sure that we understand that the old is not as good as the new. The new has come, the new is better, and we need to praise the Lord because of it. It should inform our belief. It should secure our faith. It should do some things in our hearts. And that's what he's trying to do for this group of people that he's speaking to, that he's writing to. He wants them to understand just how good they have it. And one of the ways to do that is to look back and see what did the old look like. So this morning, the title of our sermon is A Better Sacrifice. He's comparing the sacrifice of old to the sacrifice that Jesus brought. And he is looking back so that they would see what it is like now. Before we go any further, let me just pray that God would teach us this morning. I think he has some special things for us um, to understand uh, the place that we find ourselves today. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the truth that it contains. Lord, this word is truth. God, this is from you. It is for us. God, it is uh, life. It is wisdom. God, you use it to correct, to train, to rebuke. 
God, I pray that we would hear from you this morning as we study your word. And God, that you would use it to shape our understanding. And more than that, uh, Lord, that would it not just be something that we recognize in our heads, but that it would uh, impact our hearts, or that our lives would be shaped as a result of it. And so, God, would you teach us through your word now, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's look at the first few verses together. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, comparing the old with the new. He begins with the old. He's like, we got to look back. Here's what it says in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. Uh, for a tent was prepared, the first section, there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which there was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, not without taking blood for which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people, and by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. Here's where uh, the author begins is, is this, is that the old way before Christ was weak. It was weak. And this should be familiar to us, right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, we saw in verse uh, 18 of chapter 7, he says, on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. So I'm not calling it weak. God is calling it weak, all right? But we're returning to this to understand just how weak it is. And I think it's helpful for us to understand this. If you were with us back in Easter, some of you were, some of you have uh, kind of joined with us since, and so I want to kind of catch us up. But at Easter, we actually looked at Hebrews 9 and 10 on Good Friday and uh, Easter. And uh, on Good Friday, we looked at chapter 9. And as I was looking back on what we studied there, I was looking at what we want to talk about now, and I was excited because it gave me an opportunity to kind of come at it from a little different of an angle. Right? We're looking at the same verses, but we didn't, we're going to unpack something today that we didn't have a lot of time on Good Friday to look at in Hebrews uh, chapter 9. And so here, what I want to do is for us to kind of understand how and the why the ways of the old way before Christ, right? So Christ has not come yet. Christ has not lived and walked on the earth. Before that, why was it weak? And here's kind of the prevailing thing that you see um, in this passage is this, is that regular religious regulations and rituals, you like the alliteration there? Regular religious regulations and rituals are not a means of salvation. Now, lest you think that I'm creative, all of those words are right there. You see it? It says they had regulations. They said they had ritual duties. They went in regularly to it. I added the word religious because that's kind of our word today that we would describe it as. But this is not a means of salvation. Where do we see that? Verse 9, it says that the sacrifices, the gifts and sacrifices offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It has to do with more of these 
ceremonial things, these external things, and it's looking forward to what God was going to do, but in itself, the rituals by themselves did not have the power to save the worshiper. And so that's the thing that he's trying to unpack. And I think it's really helpful for us if we understand the context that the people would have had receiving this. Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers. They grew up with a very keen understanding of the tabernacle. Uh, Many of them had probably been to the temple. They they lived outside of Israel, uh, but uh, most likely near Rome. But they had probably been to the temple or for sure knew about the temple and, and were well acquainted with the tabernacle. We are not. And so it's helpful for us to kind of look backwards. And I'm going to summarize a lot of what Leviticus has uh, for us. But but I think to understand what was happening in this old way. It talks about in verse 2, it says, For a tent was prepared. And in the first section, there was this lampstand, the table, the bread of bread. Okay, what it's talking about there, that tent, some of your translations might use the word tabernacle. And this is a picture here of the tabernacle. This is the whole assembly. I showed a picture similar to this last week. This picture and all the pictures I'm using actually come from Timna Park in Israel. Um, There's a a group of um, people that have made a life-size replica of the tabernacle. I have not been able to uh, travel to this yet, so I I, uh, borrowed these pictures from somebody else. I hope to someday because um, it looks really cool. But we have all the measurements. And so the tabernacle, that kind of outside, those were white linen walls that sort of defined the, um, the exterior of it. That was 150 feet by 75 feet. And so already you get that this was a special place, right? Like once you walked inside that, things changed. There was regulations about who and when and why and how you could go inside even those outer walls. But then moving inside, you'll find that there's an altar of burning. And so if you were to walk inside, you'd kind of come to this altar of burning. And if you were not a priest, if you were just one of the Jewish people, then this was as far as you could go. But you were allowed to go up to and go to the altar of burning. It was bronze. There was a horn. You can kind of see that at each uh, corner, and offerings were tied to those horns. And this is where, uh, if you were bringing an offering, you would lay your hands on the head of the sin offering, and you would then, with the priest, that would then be sacrificed for your sins. This is the place that that would happen. Then, uh, kind of moving beyond it, if you were a priest, if you were of the tribe of Levi, you would come to the bronze wash basin. This was exclusive just for the priests. They would wash here ritualistically, regularly, all the time. Why were they so keen on getting clean and kind of washing? Um, Because Leviticus in chapter, I believe it's 16, says that if they failed to do that, if they failed to be clean and wash properly, that they would die. So that's a good reason. You know, I try to get my kids to uh, wash their hands, um, and they're pretty good about it. Uh, Levi kind of pushes the boundaries a little bit, although um, he kind of goes the opposite way. Sometimes we're like, go wash your hands, and then like 20 minutes later, he's just in there playing with like water and bubbles and all of that, right? Very different situation. If I'm like, kids, go wash your hands. Do we have to? Yeah, otherwise you're going to die, okay? So that was, that was, I mean, it was, there was a lot of rules and regulations, that's what he's talking about here. He says, he says that there was this, um, this, this, all these regulations were in place. And so they would wash before offering. They would wash before going into the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle itself is actually this tent that we see here. And it was covered by three layers of fabric. There was a beautiful tapestry of gold, of, of blue, of purple, and, and, and kind of woven. And then it was covered over with two other layers of animal skin. 
the size of the tent, um, let's see, it's 15 feet high by 15 feet wide and then 40 feet long or deep. And inside, it was divided by two rooms. This is a picture of the uh, two rooms. Don't be distracted by the very... uh, very lifelike mannequins that they have used here. Um, this was, again, the best picture that I could find. So, um, but inside, this is kind of the two rooms. And so you see at the back, there was a curtain. This was known as the veil. We've talked about that before. And there was woven into it the same colors, these royal colors, expensive colors, colors of majesty, and then embroidered into it were these two cherubim. It separated the place. And so the place that we're now a part of her seeing, this was referred to, and we see it here. He says, this was the holy place. It was this inner room. And in it, you can see there was some furniture that God had specifically given like very specific directions around. There on the right, that's the table of presence. There on the left, that's the, uh, the lampstand. In the back, there was an altar of incense. But this lampstand was very special. This was made of solid gold. And you see there's three branches springing out from each side. All seven of the branches, including the middle one, hold a flower-shaped lamp on it. And it was filled with oil. And it was kept burning at all times. Then the table uh, on the other side, sometimes referred to as the table of presence, kept on it at all times 12 loaves of bread, unleavened bread. One for each tribe. And they were eaten by the priest. It was a special um, uh, privilege for only the priest. They would eat and they would change this out every week. They put fresh bread out, fresh bread. But at all times, there was this bread, the 12 loaves, one for each tribe, symbolizing God's presence and his provision for his people. And then there was the golden altar of incense. And if you read in Hebrews, this gets a little confusing because it says... Let's go back to the text. It says, For a tent was prepared, and the first section was a lampstand, and then the table, and the bread of presence, and it's called a holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant uh, covered on all sides with gold. Here's the thing. The golden altar was for sure inside the holy place, but the way that that wording is, it says having the golden altar. It was kind of part of the holy place, or the most holy place, but it was outside, it was in the holy place. How do we know that? Well, because priests used it regularly. It was part of their, their daily rituals. And so only the high priest and only on the day of atonement was allowed to go into that most holy place. So we know that it was there living in that, but it was for the most holy place. And this, this was where there were coals burning at all times, and, and, and oftentimes what would happen is incense was um, placed in there, kind of filling the room uh, with the aroma and the, the fragrance of the incense. And then, now moving into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, as it's sometimes called, what we'll see is the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered with all gold, and above it, there was these cherubim kind of looking down, And this was referred to, the top of this is referred to as the mercy seat. It's the gold plate covering the ark. This is where the blood of atonement was sprinkled, right here. It looked just like this. This would have been, again, um, life-size replica of what it would have looked like. And then inside the ark, there were some special things. Do you see uh, the, the author of Hebrews records those? It says, having the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was, here's the three things, the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, 
and then the tablets of the covenant. This would be like a great Bible trivia question, right? What, what, were th- what three things were inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? <laughs> Golden urn, holding manna, staff of Aaron that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Again, this is kind of a replica. I think that's one of their weak... It's not as weak as the mannequins, but it's a little bit on the weak side of the um, you know, representation. But we get the idea, right? And they would have not seen that. That would have been very sacred, right? It would have been covered up. But we, you know get to look and see as a representation of what it was. But here's the thing that you have to understand is that the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, all of these things were recorded. They're saying we cannot speak in detail now because that had all, um, uh, the tabernacle had all passed away, right? It had been uh, turned into the temple, and, and, and then those regulations have now um, since changed in, in this time. But that, that he's recalling back to this. So I think if we kind of scan back out and see the whole tabernacle again, this gives us a really good sense. And here's the thing that I want to make sure that we understand. Commentators, when they were describing this, it is one of the most unique forms of worship that has ever existed. It's a very beautiful thing. What happened in this place, let me just describe it for you, but but this was um, happening all of the time. There was daily worship. It was continual like sun up to sun down, offerings were being given. People were bringing sacrifices there, like spending their money, bringing some of their, their produce or, or crops, like animals that they raised. They're, they're coming and they're bringing live animals and they're being um, killed there as sacrifices. And they're being brought there to that outer court. And week by week, priests were stationed there. Uh, they were chosen. It was the kind of high honor of you were a priest your like, highest week of honor was when you served in the holy place. It was scary, though, right? Because there was regulations. It says that they had regulations for worship. Verse 6, it says, These preparations had been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. What were they doing? Well, every day they're tending to those seven lamps, making sure they're burning just right. They're adding oil to it, keeping the wick trimmed, replacing it. They're constantly tending to the lamp. They're stoking the coals of the altar, adding more when needed. Then they would add those handfuls of incense, and it would fill the place with the smoke and the smell of the incense. Weekly, they're exchanging that bread, and then they were sitting down to eat it, a privilege that was theirs alone, only to the priests. And that was happening continually, day by day, week by week. This is the place that this was going on. Why? All because the people knew that they needed the forgiveness of their sins. This is just the ritual, the regular routine that they were in. But then on top of that, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would go into that most holy place. In New Testament times, the the kind of system that they would use is seven days before, the priest would actually leave home and stay at the temple to preserve his cleanliness. And he would practice all week so as not to make a mistake. One false move, one wrong move in the Holy of Holies, they would drag them out by a rope. They would have bells around their hems. They could hear that they're still moving because if they messed up, they were taken out. They were very careful to not become unclean during that week before. On the day of the Day of Atonement, they would offer a burnt offering. Then they would bathe, wash themselves, clean themselves, and put on the traditional robes and it was all white with some adornments. But that was to show the cleanliness of the high priest. Then what he would do 
is he would place, he would go to the temple or tabernacle here and he would place his hands on the head of a bull. This would symbolize, this, this was specifically selected as a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of his family. And that, that symbol of putting his hands on was like, hey, I'm putting my sin upon this bull, this live bull. Then he would turn to two goats that were also selected there. And with the goats, something special uh, would happen. They would cast lots over them. One of them was designated for Jehovah, the other for Azazel. Azazel is the scapegoat. This is all recorded. You can go back and look at this. Your extracurricular reading is in Leviticus 16. But this is, they would place lots over them. One was chosen for Jehovah. That was going to be the sacrifice lamb. The other was the scapegoat. And what they would do is they would tie a scarlet or a crimson wool around the horns of the scapegoat. Then a thread was bound around the one to be slaughtered. And they were left standing there. Now going back to the bull, the high priest would then sacrifice the bull. He would then fill a censer with the burning coals from the altar where the, where the bull was just sacrificed. He would take those into the most holy place and he would pour two handfuls of incense on the coals and make a cloud over the mercy seat. So there's now a cloud of incense in the most holy place. Now he would go back out of the most holy place and he would go and sacrifice the bull, taking its life, spilling its blood. He would then fill a censer uh, with, with, uh, oh, the, with the, he already did that, but now he would get some of the bull's blood and he would sprinkle that on the mercy seat and over the ground in front of it. This was symbolizing the, the giving of the blood, giving over for the forgiveness of him and for his family. Now that he had offered a sacrifice for himself and he had done so at the mercy seat, now he would go back out to those goats and he would sacrifice the goat designated for Jehovah in the same ritual and the same thing, back with the coals, back with the blood into the holy place. Then what he would do is he would mix the blood of the bull and the goat and put it on the horns of the altar and then sprinkle the altar seven times to consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the Israelites. This was done on behalf of the Israelite people. It was for the sins of the people. It says this right here in verse 7. Once a year, not without taking blood for which he offers for himself, that's the bull, and the unintentional sins of the people, that's the goat. Right? This was being sacrificed for the sins of the people. The best part of the day, like the, the moment of joyous celebration came when they would take, remember the goat that, that had the crimson wool tied around its horns? They would place, the priest would place both his hands on the head of the live goat. He would confess the sins of the people. Then they would release the goat out into the wilderness. And that symbolized the sins of the people being carried away, taken far away from them. So both the sacrifice and the carrying away, it was this picture of what God was doing with the sins of the people. This happened every year on the Day of Atonement. Then, and only then, the priest would take off his white garments. I'm sure at this point, spilled with, there was blood, right? This was a messy thing. He would then put on special robes and complete the burnt offerings of the bull and the goat. And then they were very careful because all of the remains were taken outside of the camp and then they were burned. Okay, this is the old way. So now you have a much better picture. This would have been all the things that they would have, the, the, the recipients of this letter would have, gotten when he says, now even the first covenant had its regulations for worship, right? Regulations, rituals, religious practice, this regular routine before it. But here's what he's trying to say. 
He's like, this alone, right? These regulations alone, all of this circumstance, right? All of these things were not enough to save the people. Verse 9, again, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are covered, are offered, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Therefore, he calls it weak and useless. So the point is not to put down the old way, but rather to elevate the new way. And here's the thing, is that this was never intended to save the people. It was put in there as a placeholder. It was put in there as a prophecy speaking forward, looking forward to what Christ was going to do. All of these things, if you actually go back and look at this, all of these things point forward to Christ, and they were fulfilled in Christ. That lampstand, the number seven is perfection in the Hebrew uh, number system and in, in, in their language. And so here you have this perfect lampstand, and, and Jesus himself says what? I am the light of the world. Right? Jesus was the lamp that filled the place of the temple. There was no lamp in the Holy of Holies. Why? Because the glory would fill that place. There was no light needed, but Jesus ultimately was the glory of God, and he is the light of the world. The bread, which stayed there continuously as a reminder of God's provision and, and, and sustenance of the people of God. What did Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life, John 6, 35. Right? He was the true spiritual sustenance for the people of God. That altar was the incense. That, that, that was a representative of the prayers. That, that was a visible picture of the prayers. The incense as it went up, this cloud of smoke that would go up from the tabernacle was a picture for all the people to see the prayers going up to the Lord and being received by Yahweh. How ultimately are prayers heard? Well, they're heard through Jesus Christ who is interceding on our behalf. He's speaking directly to the Father and prayers offered. It was just looking forward, prophesying forward to the time when Jesus was offering prayers in the very presence of God. Within the Holy of Holies, within that Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat, right? It symbolized that was ultimately the place that Christ's work was completed. The blood that was offered there was looking forward to the blood that Jesus was going to spill and that Jesus was going to offer and was ultimately going to be accepted by God as payment and penalty for sin. But what I thought was so cool was looking at and thinking about what are the ways that, why, why those things? You ever think about why he chose to put the things in the Ark of the Covenant that he did? Like, why an urn of manna? Why the budding rod of Aaron? Why the tablets of stone? Well, I think that urn of manna, manna was a symbol or kind of a reminder of God's provision in the wilderness. Never before and never since has God provided for an entire nation in that way. If you know what manna is, it was just this kind of, it, was, it appeared almost like dew in the morning. It was like this kind of bread sort of substance that was on the ground, and the people of God would go out every morning, and they would just gather it. What a picture, right? Like, they didn't have to toil. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to strive to go and receive it. Rather, every morning, they were reminded of God's sustaining power for them. All they had to do was go and receive that, as if God was saying each and every morning, I am your provider, Right? I will give you what you need. And so the urn in there is a reminder of God's provision for it. And is that not looking forward, foreshadowing to Christ? It's like we don't have to earn our own righteousness. We don't have to earn our own salvation. But God provides it through his son, Jesus. All we have to do is receive it, accept it, to take what God has given freely to us. Right? What about that budding rod of Aaron? Well, that, the whole story around that, you can go back and again, do some homework. There's tons of homework if you are into that. I would recommend it. There's 
there's so much good stuff. Like, I know when you hit Leviticus and you're reading plan, it's like, I don't know. I'm telling you, there's some good stuff there, okay? But what happened with the priests was all of a sudden the tribes got a little bit, um, a little bit uh, sort of, hey, what, what, what about me, right? Uh, what about us? Why is the tribe of Levi the special one that's going to have? We have people that can serve as priests as well. And so they sent some of their men to serve. And so there was this little conflict about why should Aaron be the high priest? Why should the tribe of Levi be uh, the priest? And so what happened was all of these men put their rods down together and the, bu- the rod of Aaron sprung forth with buds of life. You see, it wasn't Aaron that stepped up and said, I will be the high priest. It was God himself who said, the tribe of Levi will be the priest and Aaron will be my high priest. So from that time forward, the sons of Aaron, you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron to serve as a high priest. And so what God was saying in that moment as that rod butted is like, no, 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 there is one priest Right? There is one way. You might have some different ideas, but I'm confirming that this is the way that I want it to be done. How does that not look forward to Jesus? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. Jesus was the picture of life. Jesus was the way that he had intended for life to come. And there is no other plan. There is no other way. There is no other person that can go forward. And so it, it pointed forward to Christ even there. And then how about those tablets of the law? When Jesus, when God gave that law to his people, what he was saying is, he said, you will be holy as I am holy, right? He wanted to have a holy people, a people set apart, and so he gave them a special set of regulations and rules. There was this call for righteousness, and ultimately we did this a couple weeks ago, right? Like we know that we fall short even in the Ten Commandments. There was another several hundred that were added uh, to that, for the righteousness of the people. But that was showing that they wanted his people to be set apart and that there was some regulation, there was some rules, but what the people found is that they were unable to fulfill it, all looking forward to the time of Christ who perfectly fulfilled every one of those laws. Not one of the laws, not one of the 10, not one of the hundreds others, not one did did Jesus ever transgress. And so it was looking forward to the perfection of Christ, our shortcoming and the perfection of Christ. And so here is why he gave the old way. The old way in itself is not able to save. It was weak. It served a purpose, right? It was a placeholder. It was looking forward to that. What do priests do? Priests get people to God. That's what the priests were doing in this place, but they weren't able to do it in the same way that the great high priest Jesus Christ was. And so the old way without Christ, not as good. Let's see what the new way is. Look at verse 11. But when Christ, (laughs) what a great few words there, right? But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places. Christ came. The new way with Christ is better. The new way with Christ is better. I know some of you are taking notes and you can probably scan back up and you can look over the last couple of weeks and you're like, man, this point seems very similar to the other points. And it is. Like that is the primary point. It's like every week, it's like Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. That is what he's saying. He says, listen, this new way is better. Could you imagine if we had to do all of those things? I mean, as beautiful as a picture as it is, that's a lot of work. And that's really hard. 
And that's really difficult. And there, was, there were uh, things that were messed up. There were people that died. There were examples of when they didn't quite get it right. But when Christ appeared, things got better. What is better about Christ? I think there's five things that we see right here in the text. The first is, it was a better, he was a better priest. Christ is a better priest. The new way has a better priest. When Christ appeared as the high priest, why is he better? Well, he's not ministering in this tent made of animal skins and fabric, as beautiful as it was. It was still constructed here. It was still made here with human hands. He's not ministering there. He's ministering in the true holy place in the very presence of God. He's a better priest because in the same way, or in the way that, um, if you look down, um, that uh, Jesus did not have to offer his own uh, the, for the blood of uh, bulls or calves or anything else to sanctify him. He was already purified because he had never sinned. Right? So he was able to enter in of his own accord. And so he was a better priest. He was ministering in a better place. Right, we just said that, that that tabernacle was a human place. It was existing in an earthly realm. Jesus, the better priest, is ministering in a better place. He is in the very presence of God. So he's enter once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats or calves, right? According to his own blood, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. And that's what's next. He's offering a better sacrifice. The sacrifice offered by the priest, by the high priest, was this bull, these, this goat. What was the sacrifice that Jesus was bringing? It was his very self. It was his blood shed. It was his perfect sacrifice. Notice what it says in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify. He's like, hey, if that, was, if that sanctifies the bull, the goats, how much more, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Like, God accepted, and God did. Like, don't, don't misunderstand what the author is saying here. It's not that he didn't accept that. It just it wasn't enough to do all of it. It was looking forward to what Christ was going to do. But he says, if he accepted the blood of bulls and goats, how much more will he accept the perfect blood of his spotless son, the perfect lamb of God? And so Jesus, going into the Holy of Holies, going into the spiritual Holy of Holies, he's offering a better sacrifice than could ever be offered before. And what is he doing I love that line at the end of verse 12. He's securing an eternal redemption. What does it mean that he's securing it? Well, it cannot be lost. It is held on firmly. It is in the hands of God, and he doesn't drop things. Okay, He has secured it. What has he secured? He's secured an eternal forever, for all of time. There is no end. Right? We know what eternal means, that there is no ending to it. That means it doesn't, it's not going to be renewed next year. There's not next year's day of atonement and the year after that. This is for all of time. He secured an eternal, what? Redemption. Made new. 
new life. We just sang about graves into gardens. This is what he was doing. He was making dead things alive. He was securing an eternal redemption by his sacrifice. What did the day of atonement do for the people? It appeased God, right? It, it, it brought the forgiveness of God for that year. Then it had to be done all over again. What does the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus do? It secures an eternal redemption, not just for those sins that year, but for sins that have ever been done, sins that will be done, and there is new life that is brought through his work and his sacrifice. He's a better priest in a better place, offering a better sacrifice under a better covenant. Under a better covenant. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. It's a better covenant. Why? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. This is a new covenant, a better covenant. There are better promises in this, and that is the last thing. He's under a better covenant, guaranteeing a better promise. What is the better promise? It's an eternal inheritance of life with our creator, with our maker. Notice what it says. The sins of death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What was the death that has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions? It was Jesus' death. It was his sacrifice on the cross. He goes on to say for where a will is involved... We know what a will is, right? If you die and you have a will, you kind of direct where and what, who gets what, that kind of thing. So where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established, right? The will goes into effect after you die, all right? Wills are not fun to, to do work on. We probably need to update ours. I'm just like, we can talk about that later, but like, we haven't done that in a little while, right? Why have we done that in a while? Because I don't hope to die anytime soon, but, but I don't know if we've looked at it in a couple of years. I don't know if all of our kids are even listed on there. We should probably go back and look at that. But what, what does that mean? It's like the death of one who established, like, must take place before it's established. Verse 17, for a will takes effect at the death and is not enforced as long as the one is alive. Why is this important? Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. The will of Jesus was, ena was enacted. His will was put into place when? When he died. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop. He sprinkled the book and itself and all the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood the tent and all the vessels used in worship. He's preparing it for it. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Let me summarize that. The will of God is enacted at the death of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins comes when Jesus spills his blood. This is one of the greatest declarations that we have about the work of Jesus in the entire Bible. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Listen, you and I, all of us, every person in this room, every person that you've ever met, every person that you've ever known, is under the law condemned. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, right? It wasn't just the tabernacle in the wilderness. There are copies of true things. Where did Christ enter? He entered into heaven itself. And now to appear in the presence of God himself on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, right? It wasn't this once a year ritual. It wasn't this daily thing. The high priest every year enters with blood, on, uh, uh, with, his, with blood, not his own. Then he would have to suffer repeatedly for the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifices of himself. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, you should. Verse 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that judgment... So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, as he did the first, right? But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Guys, this is the truth of the gospel. This is the free gift of life that Jesus purchased as high priest. He is our savior. And I just wonder today, if you're here and you've never received this gift of life. If I was to tell you this morning that I had a gift for you, I'm going to give you this. This is for you. You can have it. At what point does it become yours? Well, if you never come up and get it, I'm not giving you this, by the way, but if you were, like if you came up and got, like until you get it, it is not yours. You have to receive it. You have to accept it. God is holding out to you today his free gift of life that he purchased with the blood of his son on the cross. And maybe for some of you here today, you need to receive this gift for the very first time. Maybe you've never received that forgiveness. You've tried the religious rituals, the regulations, all of that. You've tried it on your own, achieving your own righteousness. I just want to tell you that will never work. It will never make it. It's not enough. Jesus paid the debt he did not owe. He paid the debt that you and I owe. And he's offering it to you freely this morning. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, see, he didn't just die, he rose back to life. He walked out of that grave three days later If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the accepting. That's the receiving. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I wonder this morning if this is the morning that you are going to receive this free gift of life and you're going to give your life back to the Lord as an offering to him. I wonder if this is the time when you're going to do that. I would invite you to do that. If we could, if we just bow our heads, close our eyes, I just want to pray now. Maybe some of you here in this place, you've heard this before, but you've never actually received. I would just invite you, if that's you, that you would just pray along with me now. God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I have fallen short of your perfect law. I understand and see that your son was perfect and died on my behalf. I believe that he rose from the grave and is now offering me forgiveness and new life in him. 
I receive his gift of life. I receive the gift that you are giving to me today. God, this is the way that we want to respond to you. God, we understand, we acknowledge, we know, Lord, that you have worked on our behalf. God, that you have made a way through your son. God, that you have opened the holy of holies. You have opened that place where your presence is through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, we are so thankful for you. Lord, we receive today again. We're reminded today again of the perfect sacrifice that you have offered. God, I want to pray for anyone here in this room who has not yet received that. Lord, maybe they're struggling or wrestling with that decision today. Lord, I pray that you would affirm in their hearts, Lord, what they are sensing, what they know to be true. God, would your spirit lead them to know that you are who you say you are. You are the God over everything. And you are the one and only Savior of the world. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you for making a way. God, we give you praise in this place this morning. You are our better high priest with a better promise of eternal life. God, we praise you for that. And it's in your Son's name that we pray, the name of Jesus, amen.